A few weeks ago, when Keenan and I began this time together in the book of 1 John, we, we talked about the Gnostics, the Docetics, we talked about the Stoics. We know that more than likely different names, but same theologies are around even today. But in the first century, these early Gnostic philosophers did not just deny the physicality of Jesus. And we know that's refuted by scripture in John 1. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. But these Gnostic philosophers also deny the reality of sin. Now, I don't know about what all they had to get into in the first century, probably very different than what we have to get into in the 21st century, but we are all sinners, and we must understand the reality of sin. Ecclesiastes 7 speaks to this. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does, not, who does good and never sins. Uh, we all are sinners. We, we are all imperfect, and we all stumble and sometimes fall. James 3 and 2 testifies to that fact, for we all stumble in many ways. 1 John 1 and 8 that we studied just a few weeks ago. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, Gnostics in the first century claimed that sin was not even real. Or if it was real, it didn't matter. Well, the 21st century, sin is real. Darkness is real. The consequences of that sin is real. So from our previous sermons in 1 John, we have learned... That when a person really does become a follower of Jesus, there should be a change in our relationship, yes, to God, but also with sin. Because we understand and know that sin is not eliminated in the believer until he comes to glory. But our relationship to sin is changed when we truly follow and obey Jesus Christ. Emphasis on obedience. So with that being said, let me give us just a few thoughts to consider. Number one, a Christian no longer loves sin as he once did. See, when you're lost, you love sin. Sin is fun. You get into it with your friends and and you're hanging out with buddies and, whoo, man, we just get sin all over us and it is fun. But a Christian no longer loves the sin as they once did. In fact, we're, we're convicted by our sin when we do some of the same foolish things we used to do before. The Holy Spirit says, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Why why are you behaving this way? We no longer love the sin as we once did. Secondly, a Christian no longer brags about his sin as he once did. No more locker room talk about our conquest. The thing that we did at the party last Friday night and Saturday night. No, we don't brag about our sin anymore. We're shamed by the sin that we continue to commit. The Holy Spirit who convicts us of All the unrighteousness that dwells inside of us and sin dwells inside of us. Yes, the Holy Spirit dwells there, but you and I who are sinners, some of us are saved sinners, some of us are lost sinners. And I'm grateful today to know that you and I don't love sin anymore. You and I no longer brag about sin. But thirdly, a Christian no longer plans to sin as he once did. We used to put our sin on the calendar. Hey, I'm going to this place on this particular night and this is what I'm going to do. But a follower of Jesus no longer plans to sin. No, sin sort of just surprises us sometimes. A temptation comes and we fall prey to it. It happens all in one breath. But yet when we were on our way to hell, when you and I were not saved, we, uh, we planned to sin. Number four, a Christian no longer fondly remembers the sin as he once says. Now, it's okay to wax nostalgic. 
I love 80s music because that was the decade when I was sort of graduating from high school and going through college and whatever. And I think that's the decade that has the best music anyway. But when I'm listening to some of that, sometimes there's a trigger. And sometimes that trigger makes me think about things that I should not think about. Well, see, a follower of Jesus no longer fondly remembers the sin. You and I now have a spirit that allows us to separate the nostalgia from the sin. Number five, a Christian never fully enjoys the sin as he once did. And as I said before, we wouldn't commit sin if it wasn't fun. But now as a follower of Jesus, if we find ourselves both feet in again, there's no enjoyment to it because we know better. We now have the spirit. We now discern spiritual things. And then lastly, a Christian no longer is comfortable in habitual sin as they once were. Well, what does that mean? Well, most of us create habits that creates lifestyles. And when we're lost without Jesus, we are an habitual sinner. Sometimes it's the same sin. Sometimes it's derivatives of that sin. But, but we are inside of a habitual sin. But, but when Jesus comes in, and as the dog returns to the vomit, sometimes we may mess up. Sometimes we might stumble and fall. But we can't stay in that habitual sin without conviction. And that conviction prayerfully brings Repentance. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, wrote in the 1800s, the Christian no longer loves sin. Sin may enter the heart, and it even fights for dominion, but it will not sit upon the throne of the heart because Jesus sits upon the throne of our heart. And we're always at battle. We are always at war with the sin that so easily besets us. So when we look in 1 John, it appears that John starts in verse 12 by categorizing some age groups among the church family at Ephesus. However, it's not drawing attention to age groups of men in the masculine tense. No, he's referring to the stages of spiritual growth for all of us. And as I go through these stages today, I want you to identify where you are. I'm a newborn, or I'm a little child, or I'm a young man, or I'm a father or a mother. Paul had a tendency at times just to tell it like it was. Especially writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. When both of our children were born, we realized both of them loved milk. And sure enough, Zeke, our oldest, as the years went by, he loved, he, he would say, I, I want milk, daddy, I want milk. But the first time I gave him some solid food, some meat, he looked at me like, where's this been all my life? Do you know it's the same way with the things of Christ? You know, we've been on milk all this time, and then we find some nugget in God's word, and it speaks right to us, and we go, where's this been all my life? It's just like that first morsel of food that a baby takes in and goes hmm this is no longer milk this is meat I fed you with milk not solid food for you are not ready for it you know some of us still not ready for it that's the reason why when I'm preaching sometime and I'm talking about sort of deeper things or foundational things or maybe even some of the great doctrines of our faith it's like Greek to you and you don't get any of it because maybe you've not grown spiritually and listen age doesn't mean that you're wiser it just means you're older because some of us have been a Christian for a lot of years. We've just never grown. We're still not spiritually mature. 
I love how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 13. He talks about that when I was a child, I talked like a child, I acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put away the childish things. Some of us who've been a believer for years just have never put away the childish things. We're still acting like a kindergartner. We're still acting like a first grader, even though we've been in the church for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And the Bible speaks to this. I could not address you as spiritual people, but I address you as people of the flesh. Later on, the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 5, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And this has helped me as a pastor because I've wondered why so-called mature people act immature when certain things happen in the church. That right there covers it. You need milk, not solid food. Simply because you need to be taught again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Sometimes we just have to go back to the beginning. And we have to start all over. We learn our ABCs. We learn our numbers. Sometimes we must be willing to do that in the church. Peter later on wrote... In 1 Peter 2, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, referring to solid food, the great doctrines of our faith. So I believe that if you put these scriptures in mind that I've just shared with you as a foundation, I want us to look in 1 John 2. So if you have your Bibles, your smartphone, your iPad, your Kindle, turn with me to 1 John 2, and we're going to pick up reading in verse 12. And I believe that we can all learn from John today. I am writing to you little children. So now he is referring to little boys like Taylor's testimony a few moments ago. He was a young man. He was seven. His buddy Mason was eight. I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Prayerfully, early on in your walk, early on in my walk, I recognize that I am forgiven because Jesus was forsaken. I didn't earn it. I couldn't work for it. What I deserved was justice because our God is a God of justice. But praise his name, he's also a God of mercy and he's a God of grace. And some of us feel like, Joel, I've done so much. I have sinned big time. There's no way that he can forgive me. Well, just like me, you deserve justice. But if you're willing to come to God today with childlike faith and repentance, you can receive mercy and you can receive grace. You see, justice is getting what we deserve. But mercy is not getting what we deserve, and grace is getting what we don't deserve. I vote for mercy and grace, amen? I vote for something that changes me and changes you from the inside out. Now, maybe you're here today and you just recently got saved. Maybe just recently you were baptized. For newborn babes just saved on the milk, we have little children who recognize they have been forgiven. And to God be the glory. You saw, you saw a few weeks ago Danny's baptism. Danny had been talking to Joe and I for, for months about her decision to follow Jesus. And of course, her being a PK, a preacher's kid, I didn't want to force that and, and, and require her to be baptized nine more times later on in life because dad forced her to be baptized. I wanted her to hear the Holy Spirit. And over a period of time, to God be the glory, she finally came to us and said, Mom, Dad, I'm ready. I'm ready to invite Jesus into my life. And it was the most beautiful moment. But she's still a newborn babe. As an eight-year-old, her cognitive ability can only understand so much. 
But as she gets older, prayerfully, our job as parents, the job of our children's ministry, the job of our student ministry, the job of the ministry of our church is to make her into a disciple. Look at verse 13. I am writing to you fathers. I'm not only writing to little children, but I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. One of the great blessings of our church, because we've been around a long time, is that there are a lot of spiritual fathers and a lot of spiritual mothers. And it just doesn't mean that because you've gotten a little gray hair or you've been around a long time that you automatically take on this role. No, you've lived life. You've gone through the hardships. You've gone through the difficulties. You've gone through the tough times. And through it all, you have had faith in God. And now here you are years later, you're spiritually mature in your faith. And guys like me and others come to you. Why? Because we have watched you walk faithfully for years. We need fathers in the church. We need spiritual mothers in the church. Men and women who have fed on the word, who have been a prayer warrior, who, who witness to other people, who are faithful to the church. And let me just give kudos once again. I think back to COVID and when I was preaching to the lens of a camera rather than to people. And all that we went through as a church, we never missed a beat because of spiritually mature people who continued to give who were faithful in their tithes and offerings, who, who were faithful in every aspect of our church to God be the glory. But we had to keep the lights on. We had to continue to do the things of ministry and because of the spiritual maturity of our church. So I'm writing to many fathers and many mothers and I agree with John the apostle. I am so grateful for you. Our staff is grateful for you. But please be reminded, just because you're older and your birth certificate says that, doesn't mean you're spiritually mature. Because I see young men like Taylor and others, that even though they don't have a lot of age under their belt, they are getting spiritually mature day by day. Why? They're spending time investing in the Word of God. Look at 13b. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Young men, young ladies who have a strong walk with Christ. They have this confidence, not cockiness, but confidence in Jesus. They are learning not to trust the flesh, but they trust the spirit. They recognize the flesh and the mind will fail without the mind of Christ. You may be intellectually smart. You had a great store, score on your SAT. You had a great score on your ACT. You have degrees hanging on your wall, but you could be spiritually ignorant. I want to encourage you that if you find yourself in this particular category, continue to study God's Word. Now, there are incredible books out there written by pastors and other authors about the Bible. I want to encourage you to read the Bible, study the Bible, take God's Word into your heart that you may not sin against God. Same verse 13, letter C. I write to you children because you know the Father. So we're referring back again to young believers, not just age-wise or age-graded, but individuals who are young in their faith. I write to you because you know the Father. I often have conversations with folks that'll say, you know, Joel, you can't know whether or not you're saved. And I'll retort and I'll go, I wouldn't want to live my life without knowing I was saved. They go, what are you talking about? I said, the Bible says you can know where. First John chapter 5, verse 13, among many other places, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And they'll go, where'd you find that? I've never read that. Let me tell you where some of us are. 
For some of us, even though we're a member at First Baptist Church, it's been a long time since you've cracked this book. I know entire major denominationals who will sit in their particular pew or their chair week after week, month after month, year after year, without ever opening their Bible. There's something wrong with this picture. I encourage you, you either bring your Bible or you got it on your smartphone, your iPad or your Kindle. You follow along with me. And if I mess up, you need to call me out on it. Simply because these things have been written that we may know that we have eternal life. So you and I can know if we're saved today. And as a sidebar, if you don't know that you're saved today, you're in the right place. We'd love to talk with you about this. I know this is a day that we've sort of set aside. We're going to be voting on Taylor and all those kind of good things. I understand all that. But I think Taylor would be the first one to say, but if somebody's lost, I want them to be saved today. This day's not about me. This day is about Jesus. Verse 14. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Again, spiritual maturity will allow you to look at the deeper things of God and believe them by faith. The greatest verse of all is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what is so powerful and beautiful about this verse, none of us were there. But oh, how scientists and others like to speculate. I made up my mind a long time ago, I'm just going to believe the book. I'm just going to believe the Word of God. And if you'll look at our little small ball of dirt and our solar system that's a part of the big Milky Way galaxy, did you know that if the planet Earth was not 93 million miles away from the sun, we couldn't exist? If it was 92 million, no humans. 94 million, no humans. But we're exactly 93 million miles away from the sun. You and I are here. Even the moon that goes around the earth. Let me just tell you about it. It's 238,000 miles away. If it was 237, we're not here. If it's 239, we're not here. God designed the universe. It has a designer. His name is Jehovah God. Now, a lot of people would love to do some speculation. They would love to do... But none of us were there. So why can't we just believe by faith what God's word says? That requires spiritual maturity. Now, spiritually immature people like to try to dissect and, and refute and say that's not real. It's not you being smart. It's you being a smart aleck. But I believe in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John believed this so much, he repeats himself in the words of the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That's Genesis 1-1 in New Testament vernacular. But you go on down to, say, the book of Colossians, chapter 1, that he is the image of the invisible God. Whom? Jesus He's the firstborn of all creation. Whom? Jesus. For by him, whom? Jesus. All things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. You know how the universe stays together? Jesus holds it together. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And just to be quite honest with you, it takes great faith to believe that. Some of us are more likely to believe a Steven Spielberg science fiction movie than that. But this is what the Word of God teaches. And see, for spiritually mature individuals, we take God at His Word. Especially spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. 
verse 14b. I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So let's say you walked into this room today and you've had a tough week. Maybe there's been some hardship. Maybe, maybe you got that phone call from the doctor and you, right now you're just a little bit nervous. Maybe there's a relationship issue. I write to you young men because you are strong. God's word abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So many verses I could have selected, but let me give you just a few here. Psalm 31 verse 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage. I don't know who that's for today. Maybe there's some uncertainty on your calendar. There's some things on the horizon you just don't know about. Be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord. And over the last seven years, I've talked to you over, over, over and over and over again about waiting. None of us like to wait. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those who wait on the Lord. But hear me out. Waiting time is not wasted time. So many of us go, man, if I got to wait on something, I always have a book in the car with me. So let's say I get stuck in traffic in Madison and you will many times. I got something to do. Waiting time's not wasted time. So what you do is you make sure that if God's got you in his waiting room and you're waiting on him to give you a decision about something or bring a person into your life or whatever it may be, don't waste the time he's given you. Because one of the great problems in our universe today is all of us think we have enough time. And we don't. So that's why we take the time that is given to us and we make something from it. Isaiah 54, 17. I love this passage. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that no weapon will be formed. The devil wants to take you out. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your kids. He wants to destroy your finances. He wants to destroy everything that's good in you. But no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the saints of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, saith the Lord. So that verse of Scripture doesn't make us immune to battles, to warfare, to the devil trying to do something to destroy me or destroy my home or my family. But praise God, as an inheritance and heritage of the saints of God... The weapon formed by the enemy against me will not prosper. How, how then, Joel, can I keep doing what I do and knowing that there's warfare all around me? We've got to learn something in Ephesians 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Not a one of us in this room, probably, we don't enjoy Friday night lights. I know I'm enjoying watching Zeke play ball. But Zeke is never suited up for the Westminster Christian Academy Wildcats without a helmet. In fact, they won't let you play. It's a penalty. And if you're out on the field and somehow your helmet gets knocked from your head while you're playing, you have to stand still. You can't do anything. You can't be involved in the play. If you do, it's a penalty. Some of us are trying to walk into spiritual warfare without the whole armor. 
We don't have on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. We don't have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We don't have the shield of faith. We don't have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We don't have the joy of the Lord as our strength that's covering our back. No, some of us are trying to go into battle selectively. I want you to know that the enemy always comes at you with everything he's got. He always trying to destroy you. He's always trying to tear you down. So with that in mind, why would you go into a battle without the whole armor of God? Because only with the whole armor of God are you able to withstand against the cunning devices or the wiles of the devil. And listen, the devil's been around a long time. He loves to find what your Achilles heel is. He loves to find out what your weakness is and then try to exploit it. That way he wants to tear you down and take others down with you. Some of us have been walking with Jesus a long time. Some of us have not. But maybe you're contemplating a decision today and you've thought about, hmm, I've got some things going on in my life because it's been handed down to me generationally. This quote came to me late last night and I wrote it down this morning. You are in the business of breaking generational curses. That's why things don't come so easy for you. You are who your bloodline has been waiting for. See, if you go back and you look at your family tree, heathen, 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 real bad heathen. And then you got saved. You are who your bloodline's been waiting for. You're the one that's supposed to go, enough is enough. There's the line, no more. If pornography has filled your family, you may be the one that breaks the curse. Alcoholism, drug addiction. I could go on and on. I think you get the picture. You are who your bloodline's been waiting for. You're the one that takes the whole armor of God and says enough is enough. I will stand on God's word no matter what. So I want you to consider this. John gives us several stages of spiritual growth. Newborn, little children, young men, and fathers. Which one are you? And be honest. We're not here to impress anybody. We can't impress God. He's God. So let's just be honest of where we are in our spiritual maturity or lack thereof. I'm going to give you three final words to think about. You've heard me talk about these before. I was saved when I believed. That's justification. It's a, it's a judicial word. It's a one time forever settled. When you repented of your sin, when I repented of my mind, uh, of my sin, justification. I was justified just as if I've never sinned, Romans 5. So I was saved when I believed. But I fear that some of us have never moved beyond this point. You got saved and you quit. You got saved and you stopped. I think God's word encourages to be saved and keep moving. Because there's so much more to learn. Which is called sanctification. I am being saved. I continually feed myself on the word of God. I, I continually feed myself in praise and worship. I continually do this. I am being saved. I'm being sanctified. The word sanctified literally means to be set apart. I'm being set apart by God. Last Sunday, Greg Glaze led worship for Joel Davis's memorial service. Joe Teal preached Brother Joel Davis's memorial service. It was incredible. The worship was powerful. The word of God was powerful. Just like Brother Joel and countless others, there's going to come a day of glorification. 
Yes, there's justification when we get saved. There's sanctification in the present, but one day there's glorification. I will be saved. I'll be taken from this earth. I'll pass from death to life. Some of you don't know that. Some of you have never understood that. And maybe, just maybe, you've been a very religious person your whole life, but you've never, ever had a relationship with Jesus. Well, my name's on the roll. Which one? The one that matters or the one that doesn't matter? We affectionately call this very large book that Sue has in her office the book of life. It's a huge, very thick book of everybody who either joins our church by baptism, by statement of faith, or by letter. Their name gets put in that book. Thousands of names over the last however many years. Not everybody's name that's in that book is saved. But everybody that's in his book is. And that's what I want you to consider today as I close. Justified, sanctified, but one day because of Jesus, I'll be glorified and I'll be in his presence forever.